I have a little bit of a cold, so it sounds like I'm doing late night FM radio today. So I've written down a lot of facts here, so I'm going to read a few things to you. But we do live in the era of information overload. You and I have access to more information, more data, more facts, more news, more numbers, more knowledge than any people in history. Did you know that the amount of information is doubling every five years? The information avalanche has become part of our life, hasn't it? It's amazing. We get up in the morning, we turn on KOA 850, and we can hear the stock market and what the news is from Tokyo. We hear what the traffic's doing on I-25 and I-70. Over breakfast, we check the paper for stats on our investment and the scores from spring training or the NCAA. The latest scoop to what the reaction was from the Oscar nominations or winners. We've also been greeted by industry newsletters, computer printouts, government studies, trade journals, annual reports. The computer literally fills up with electronic mail. It's not uncommon for business people in the afternoon to review a credit report from one of their customers. And then uh, we tap into our computer database for the latest information on, on what the inventory is in our company. We come home, we play the telephone answering machine, and we leaf through Time Magazine, check the cable TV, check what's going on with the NCAA, what the closing stock prices are, our favorite concert. Even before we go to bed, we tune in and hear the news that too much coffee can contribute to heart attacks. The national debt is still out of control. Apples might now be safe to eat. But drinking the so-called artesian water mm, could be a problem. Our lives are becoming a frenzy of facts. Not let alone all the games that we can play all day long. Fueling that frenzy is the, is the course of the computers that we use. Computer advancements are allowing us now to do all kinds of amazing things that squeeze data into tighter and tighter spaces so that we have more access to information at faster and in just light speed rates. There's a computer chip now that's so small, they are telling me, that it can actually fit into the jaws of an ant. And this computer, this little computer chip can hold 400 pages of a telephone directory. You probably don't know that people are collecting information on us without our knowledge. Or maybe you did. The top five credit agencies have records on more than 150 million of us. And on the average, your name on the Internet is, pops up at least 35 times a day. And it gets passed between computers at least five times a day. And you thought you were anonymous. Last night we were having dinner with a Toyota uh, general manager of a Toyota place. He said that if you check in for an, a Toyota now and six months later you go back to your computer and check in again, Toyota knows that. And they send you a little email, email saying, hmm, you checked in six months. Are you looking again? Now that information of losing some thought six months ago might not be helpful for some of you, but at my age, it is helpful. It is helpful to know that I thought that. Yeah. We're, we're, we're pumping out books in this country alone at 60,000 a year. In fact, the world's greatest libraries are doubling in their information and what they're stocking on their bookshelves every 14 years. 
Then there's the information that comes out via newsletters. Did you know that currently right now in America there's over 500,000 different newsletters? <laughs> there's newsletters for all kinds of things. For garlic lovers, stone skippers, metric system opponents. There's even a, a letter for Millard Fillmore fans, marble players, mothers of twins. There's even a newsletter for people who are called or named Mike. There's even a new. <laughs> There's even a newsletter for the Procrastinators Club, aptly named last month's newsletter. And then there's newspapers. Did you know that in Colorado alone there are 49 daily newspapers? It's amazing that in just one copy of the Denver Post on one day, there's more information in that paper than there was if you had lived in England in the 17th century for your whole life. And the exchange of information is unrelenting. Americans have over 1.3 billion phone conversations per day. I think my daughter is involved in about a third of those. We send each other 130 billion pieces of mail a year. We're drowning in data. And the ironic thing is this, is that with all this information, we forget about 80% of it when the day is over. Virtually all of it, to most degree, is irrelevant to us. Now, that is amazing that it's that much is irrelevant. But it's certainly almost all of it, way higher than 80%, is irrelevant to our eternal destiny. Which is probably the most interesting fact and, and decision that we face in our lifetime. Now, when, we, when you think about it, despite the unending torrent of information that we're receiving, there are, there, there are very few things that we need. I mean, you need to know your name, you need to know your telephone number, you need to know your Social Security, and so forth, things like that. And it probably wouldn't hurt to know that next April 5th, the Rockies are opening. But what we really need to know, and what we need to know, is how do we end up in the right place in the afterlife? How does that happen? A fellow told me a story about a pastor who some time ago had a, one of his congregational members come to him and he said, you know, he said, I think we're going to be dead a whole lot longer than we're going to be alive. And we're going to go in an eternity. We're going to be in an afterlife a whole lot longer than we're going to be in this life. And with all the information that's out there, it would seem that uh, in the stuff that's coming our way, we should really resolve whether or not we know for sure we can go to heaven. You know, today it's really interesting that three out of four people tell us that they think their chances of going to heaven are good or excellent. But the Bible says we don't have to guess about it. The Bible says that we don't have to lay odds. It's not a crapshoot. We can know for sure. There's a favorite magazine by, from, that, that many Americans love. It's called U.S. News World and Report. I don't read it that often, but... A lot of people do. And I understand there's a section in the back of that it's, that's entitled News You Can Use, which would leave one to indicate that there's news that you can know, and then there's news that you can actually use. Well, this Easter, what I wanted to do this morning was to give you some information that you can actually use, not just know. I'm going to present you with news that you can use, information that could affect your personal and eternal destiny. News that pertains to how a person can be sure they can go to heaven. 
when they die. And in case you haven't noticed yet or thought about it recently, the death rate in our country is still very high. It's hovering right around 100%. So, and when you think of it, given the good weather outside and because we all have a collective case of spring fever probably today, and because opening day is of the baseball season starts next Friday in Colorado, I wanted to bring an explanation to you of how a person becomes sure of spending eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ by asking you to employ your imagination for a moment. I want to create kind of a scenario that's not original with me, but I want you to take this because I thought when I read about this, this was really cool. And this will be an illustration of the kind of information I want you to know. Imagine with me that there are probably a half dozen very wealthy, sports-crazy people who are holding a series of meetings uh, in New York for the purpose of creating a new honor society for peak performers in Major League Baseball. They've come to the conclusion that the current Baseball Hall of Fame is uh, not the best. It's been too easy to get in. A lot of people are getting in that shouldn't be getting in. And that and 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 because they are getting in with because the, it's been a dumbing down of the statistics that really offends a lot of eccentric Easterners. They also realize that major league players aren't aren't even revved up about having their uniform hang in Cooperstown, New York. It's not that big a deal. It's not that much of an incentive. So these people agree to form and fund a whole new and very elite society for peak performers in Major League Baseball, and they plan to call it this, the All-Universe Players Association, the AAP or the AUPA, ALPA. They're going to get maximum media exposure when they announce it. They want everyone in the world to know what the tremendous rewards are going to be with this. I mean, they've got some really great awards here and rewards with this. They're going to be incredible. I mean, it's going to be a lot of vast sums of money. There's going to be college scholarships for your kids and for your grandchildren. There's going to be unprecedented media coverage, endorsement opportunities. The list goes on. And needless to say, the rewards make every baseball player salivate. But the requirements are stiff. There's only two. Yep, just two. Not counting the stipulation that the player must be in the league for at least five years to be eligible, first of all, to qualify. But the first requirement is that the player must play his entire career without committing one error. Not one. Not a fielding error, throwing error, no pass balls, wild pitches, no box, no getting picked off base, no getting caught stealing. You get the point. Error-free baseball for at least a five-year career. The second requirement is that the player must bat 1,000. Every time he comes up to bat, he's got to get a hit. No strikeouts, no groundouts, no flyouts, no fielder's choice. He's got to get a hit every time he comes up. That is if he's going to qualify to get into ALPA. Now, if anybody achieves those objectives, they have access to these incredible rewards. Mountains of money, scholarships, as I said before, fame, you name it. Such a deal, what an opportunity. Amazing. This becomes the dream of every professional baseball player in this scenario. And in this scenario, it was leaked back to me that even one Colorado Rocky is thinking about going for it. He says, I'm going to be the first person to ever play in the Alpa. He wants to shoot for this All-Universe Players Association. He's going for the gold, we heard from Arizona. So he's been taking a lot of extra fielding practice, taking a lot of extra back batting practice, been hitting the weights, doing a lot of running. He's going to make it into the Alpa. He's going to be the first guy to ever do it, he says. But let me tell you something. 
The sad fact is that this Rockies player, it's just a pipe dream, really. He's never going to make it into the Alpa. Really, to tell you the truth, he's wasting his time. Phenomenal athlete he may be, he's already broken both requirements necessary to make it into the Alpa. Ball would agree he's a superb player, but he'll never make it. And friends today, essential information is that the Bible says that for us here in this congregation today, there's two ways that you can get to heaven. Two ways. Plan A. What's plan A? The first is that by your moral and ethical performance, and we'll call that plan A, the perfect performance plan, you can get in. And then there's plan B which is gaining heaven by entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now, everyone in this church is operating on one of those two plans. And whether you realize it or not, and because everybody here, if a push came to shove, I would say that everyone here would love to go to heaven. But you're operating on one of those two plans this morning. You're either on plan A and you're saying to yourself, I think I'll be good enough. You're trying to get there via plan A or plan B. How conscious you are of this, I can't tell because I don't know you all. Now, if you're currently planning to perform your way into God's good grace and eventually into the gates of heaven, the Bible says, okay, you're on plan A. You must then fulfill two requirements, and here's what they are. Number one, if you're going to take plan A, here it comes. Number one, you must first live a sin-free life every day of your life. Requirement one for plan A, the performance plan, you must play error-free ball <clears throat> morally, ethically, verbally, relationally, spiritually. It has to be that way. You've got to perform perfect. Not one single wayward sin or evil thought, word, deed, or action can ever be construed from your mouth. And along with that, there's a second requirement. The second requirement is that you must demonstrate perfect righteousness in every single act of your life. Wow. You've got to get a hit every time you're up to the plate. Which in everyday living means that every conversation you have with somebody else must be righteous in every single way. Every decision that you make in the marketplace, with your family, with your personal life, with every, it must be right and honorable. And it must be properly motivated. That's interesting. Every relationship you have must be filled with purity, love, truth. You must love God perfectly. And continually, every waking minute of the day, with your heart, soul, even your strength for the rest of your life. And the Bible says that if anybody on plan A can fulfill those two requirements, they get in. Wow. No guesswork. You can bank on it. You get to the judgment, God looks you in the eye and says, You know what? You did it. You never made a mistake, you never sinned. You hit a thousand every time, and you live morally and perfectly right. Come on in. Great job. Well done. That's plan A. But it must be noted that if plan, if a person is on plan A, the performance plan, that is, you're committing to error-free ball. Because if you commit even one error over the course of your life, one sin, you know, one slip of the tongue, one prideful thought, one lustful look, one hateful deed, or if one person on the performance plan fails to manifest absolute righteousness in even one situation, fails to show pity to the poor or love to the forgotten, wow, or even to neglect, 
to love God perfectly for one afternoon. Plan A goes in the tank. So you see, no longer are you fielding or your batting averages at a thousand percent. And instantly it becomes mathematically impossible to raise the fielding or batting average back up to a thousand. And he will not lower the standard because he's a holy, righteous God. And yet, friends, I meet people every day who have already broken both of God's requirement in this performance plan, and they still expect to get into heaven. They've broken things thousands of times. They've morally been bankrupt over and over again. And yet these people, these dear people, are banking on the fact that if they just keep chipping away, if they just keep slugging away, if they just try to improve some of their moral fielding and batting average, if they just go to church, give a couple of bucks once in a while, help somebody with a little deed of kindness, that somehow God will say, okay, okay, come on in. And God says to these people, give it up. Give it up. You've already broken the requirements. It's now categorically, undeniably, mathematically, and theologically impossible for you to bring your averages up to perfection. It doesn't work in math. And my friend, it doesn't work in theology. Plan A has got to be scrapped. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Not you, not me. Sheer logic, elementary truth-telling should convince all of us to scrap plan A. It won't get us to where we want to go. Can you do that today? That's the message of Easter 2013. Can you be honest enough with yourself to say, I've been on plan A and I am kidding myself here. I've got errors that are dried in ink. I've got a batting average that I'll never raise up, no matter what I do. But there are people who think, you know, well, I'm still batting 385 and that would get me into the Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. Well, I'm sure it beats somebody else's average. I'll remind you that the performance plan is not judged on the curve. God doesn't grade on the curve. It's based on pass-fail. Either you hit the perfect standard or you fail. And I think we all have the uncanny ability, do we not, to pick out somebody who's got a worse batting average than we do. <laughs> Who we can compare our moral failures with and say, we're not that bad. I read an illustration from a book not too long ago. It's been a while, but I remembered it. I, I thought it was really a good book. It was an account of a pastor who sat on a plane next to the girlfriend of a nationally known NBA basketball player. The pastor won't reveal the name, which I think is good. She had just spent the whole weekend partying with him, this basketball player, at the team hotel. She casually mentioned, she said to me, over the course of our flight that she had been involved that weekend in all kinds of sexual misconduct, drunkenness, drug use, general nuisance making. After she finished describing her whole party weekend for me, she said to me, what do you do? He said, I embarrass party women. <laughs> I do that for a living. Uh, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. And I think I'm probably going to do it right now, he said in this illustration. I'm a minister. And then she said, well, that's interesting because I've got a lot of friends who really need you. 
They've been mixed up with all kinds of things. They're, and, 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 they to, and then she told me about her terrible, terrible friends. The pastor goes on to say, I let her talk for a while. And then I said, well, let's just talk about you. Because I don't know your friends. Might you need a little religion? She got very defensive and she said, well, compared to my friends, I'm Mother Teresa. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to offend you, but comparing yourself to your terrible friends is like me bragging that I can bench press more than my grandmother. I mean, it's easy to make those comparisons, but you're just playing games. That's all you're doing. But since you brought up her name, how do you compare to Mother Teresa? She said, I don't want to talk about it. And then the pastor said this, and that three-hour flight seemed like eternity. It seems all of us who spend time comparing moral fielding and batting averages with people should realize that it's all for naught because once we commit one error, strike out one time, it's mathematically impossible. What does it matter if you hit 385, if you hit 600, you're not hitting 1,000. And because of God's holiness, He demands perfection. We're much better off stopping this self-destruction of comparing ourselves and admitting that plan A is of no longer any value to us. Now I'm going to try to describe plan B for you very briefly. Because I believe it's the best news you'll ever hear in your life. No matter how you've lived up to this point, plan B can come in. And it's just because we have a God who is loving who's kind, who's eternal, who's intimate, and desires your very best for you, that we can have this. You matter to Him. And He knows that plan A isn't going to work for you. So He brought in plan B. And, said, and God said, let me take the responsibility to fix your unacceptable fielding and batting averages. And the way He does it is absolutely brilliant. And because of His holiness, He can't lower the standard, so He's going to raise you up. And so He decides to send His Son to this earth. And for 33 years, Jesus proclaims the good news. Or at least the last three years, it becomes pretty obvious and public that He is. And during those years, Jesus accomplishes what no human being will ever accomplish. In baseball language, Jesus hits a thousand. Jesus fields a thousand. He, he had a sinless life, manifested perfect righteousness in every situation, conversation, and relationship that came his way. Bar none. He fielded and batted a thousand, which then qualified him to take your place on the cross. In just a few minutes, we're going to have communion. That's one of the beautiful things about the bread and the cup. When you take the bread, you need to think about Jesus and the violent death that He died on the cross for you because the Scripture records in prophecy that without the violent act of a death, no peace can be made with God. And then He shed His blood, and through the, through the shedding of the blood, there was remission for sin, and it covered it. It was phenomenal. You see this as you look at the, at the Ark of the Covenant. You see one angel hovered over the Ark, and another angel hovered over the Ark. And it's the cherubim and seraphim, and they're looking down into the Ark, if you've ever seen the picture. And inside that Ark, inside that ark were three things that indicated separation from God. There was Aaron's rod, there was the Ten Commandments, and there was the jar of manna, each indicating one separate way in which man was separated from God. His leadership was gone, his eternal life was ba bagged, and he, he, he destroyed the moral law. 
On the top of that Ark of the Covenant was the top of the cover where the blood of the bulls and goats was spread over that, over that thing. And as righteousness, seraphim and, and, and justice, the, the seraphim looked down into that Ark, their eyes were blocked by the blood. They could no longer see the three ways in which man was separated from God. And the blood covered it all. That's why we sing these songs. There's power in the blood. That's why we have these, these, these things like communion. And we say, without the, without the shedding of the blood, there's no remission for sin. But this death, this death, the blood that was spread upon the mercy seat that, that was laid over the three ways in which man was separated from God, that blood, righteousness and justice, were eternally satisfied in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is powerful stuff, gang. That's all about plan B. Because of that performance that enabled God to employ this ingenious transfer thing. And this transfer plan was great because Christ agrees to participate in two two miraculous transfers. Number one, the first, Jesus carefully transfers all of our mistakes, sins, and errors from our personal moral ledger on the sheet of our life, and he puts it all on him. Oh, man. And in that moment, Jesus' own ledger sheet becomes dotted and stained with our stuff. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. This is why he had to be punished. This is why Jesus had to shed his blood. The guilt had been transferred by my account to the account of Jesus. But he couldn't have been that perfect sacrifice because just like the blood of the bulls and goats, they had to have that kind of perfection of the bull and the goat. So Jesus' life was perfect and his blood didn't cover for just a time because Hebrews says that every year they had to manifest that sacrifice. But now, much more, Jesus' blood covers it for all time. Righteousness and justice justice are satisfied forever. This is amazing stuff. That's the first transfer. The second transfer was that he transferred his perfect righteousness to your sorely lacking righteousness ledger. <laughs> you, needed, you needed something on that side too. And on the completion of that second transfer, that righteousness transfer, a once unacceptable player had been made acceptable in the eyes of God. No deficiency in you. As a result of those miraculous transfers made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, you and I, we are error-intensive people, are we not? (laughs) We are oftentimes moral failures. And we are made acceptable in front of a holy God. Now, God needed something to give a universal signal that this was He was satisfied. And so in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says, And He was raised for our justification. God said in one final statement, I'm satisfied with this. This covers it. From now on, anyone who receives my Son, who takes their own life and says, I think I can make it on my own, which is plan A, and transfers that whole thing over to what Jesus Christ did on the cross and takes plan B, those people who do that honestly will be made righteousness, will be made righteous and are acceptable in my sight and may come and live with me for eternity. That's news you can use. But he needed a signal, didn't he? 
And he said, I'm going to blow everybody's mind. This Jesus who died on the third day, I'm going to raise him up. (laughs) Oh, thank God he didn't leave it at Friday, right? Sunday's coming. In just 72 hours, it's going to be a whole new ball game. This is an old, old story, and if you've heard it before, take a nap. But this is a story that has captured my life, and I want to just give it in a short detail. I have an acquaintance, not even a friend. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I have an acquaintance that I met him at a a conference at Arrowhead Springs, and and that's all it is. I've met him a couple times. He probably wouldn't remember me for anything, but his name was Tony Campolo. And he lived in Philadelphia, and when he lived in the neighborhood, he lived in this kind of all-Italian neighborhood, and then people began to leave to the suburbs. And uh, as, as they did, you know, uh, kids move out of the city and they go to the suburbs. A lot of, it became ethnically, uh, 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 just a whole lot of different ethnic groups started moving in. And, but his family stayed, the Campolo family stayed. And they went to this church, which was oh, a couple, 3,000 there, and it became a pretty much of an African-American church, but the Campolo family fell right at home there, and they stayed to worship there. And Tony was carrying on with his ministerial duties. He was a professor at Eastern uh, Seminary, uh, and American Baptist Seminary, and he, he, was, uh, he was speaking around. And so one day, his black pastor said, on Good Friday, Tony, he said, we're going to have a Good Friday service that's going to start at noon and probably get over about 8 in the evening. That's kind of the way they did it in black churches. You know, they kind of stuck around for a while. We had a Good Friday service here, and it went for about an hour. But, but in black churches, it can go a little longer. And that day, they had eight pastors that were going to speak, about 45 minutes each. Back-to-back, black preaching, with one white guy in the middle. Now, if you've ever been to a, a white church, like you are here now, if the white, if the white pastor is doing really good in the service, it gets real quiet. You can hear a pin drop. But in the black church, if you're doing really well, they let you know it. They start talking to you. Preach it, brother. Come on now. Come on. Come on. And the women, the women get out the white hankies and they wave them and they go, well, well, well. You know, they're, they're really, everybody's involved. Even if you're lousy, they start yelling at you. Help them, Jesus. Help them. You know, they, they, they let you know what you're doing. And, and Tony was up there and there were three guys before him and he got up and he, he, uh, he got up and he said, I did really good. He said, I had them yelling. They were waving their hankies. They were saying, come on, brother, preach it. Come on, let me have it. He said, I was really good. And after 45 minutes, I sat down next to my pastor. And I took, I did something I should have done. I looked him in the eye and I said, I don't believe you can top that. You see, now in white, in white churches, when we sit down and we preach a good message and somebody says, that was good, Dr. G, I would say something like, well, you know, give the Lord through me. Not in a black church. Mm-mm. They say, the black preacher says, the black preacher said to Tony, sit down, son. I'm going to give you a lesson. So he got up, and sure enough, he said that black preacher did. He gave me a lesson, Tony said. He said for 45 minutes, he had one phrase. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, and the disciples are discouraged. And Peter's denied Christ. That's because it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. 
It's Friday. And the devil's doing a jig and Mary's crying. That's because it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. And the world is going crazy and there's everybody's lost and sin is abounding. That's because it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. And he said, he did this for 45 minutes. It's Friday. And then Sunday's coming. And finally, at the end of 45 minutes, this black pastor, this wonderful black pastor stood up. And he screamed at the top of his lungs to the two or 3,000 people that were there. And he just yelled out, it's Friday. And he said the whole congregation just stood up and yelled back at him. Sunday's coming. Let me tell you something. Some days around here in America and in Denver, it sure feels like Friday, doesn't it? The budget's out of whack. There's more fighting between political parties than we've ever seen. People are nasty to each other. There's more civil suits than we've ever seen in the court. It's Friday. But Sunday's coming, gang. And because Sunday came and it's coming again, that means that plan B is true. If it wasn't true, it'd be Friday all the time. And we'd be stuck with plan A. And the Bible says, no. Your relationship is not with the rules. It's with the ruler. And this is where it's got to be for us. He said, my Jesus, my son, will serve you well. He knew your averages. And he died for you. And the essence of Christianity is not this futile attempt to keep rules. The essence of Christianity is turning out to Christ and be transformed and forgiven. And then he personally builds his relationship within you. He transforms your life. Why? Because it didn't stay Friday. Sunday came. And because he got out of the grave and it told the world that God was satisfied, then he said basically, plan B is an operation. It's worth it. And today as you take the cup, as you take the bread, remind yourself that that's why Jesus was both God and man. Perfectly God, perfectly man. It would take a man to die for a man's sins, but it would take a God to appease the wrath of a God. And that's why you can know that plan B is a much better plan. As I pray today, I want to offer a prayer that I prayed when I first received Christ. It's a prayer to ask Him to come in. It's a prayer that says, I'm abandoning plan A, and I'm going with plan B. And if you should pray that prayer with us today, then later, come talk to me, come talk to one of the people in the choir. Why they're wearing... Green Bay Packer colors, I'll never know. But you could talk to them. They're good people anyway. (laughs) And they'll help you on this new adventure of knowing Christ. Plan B. He is Lord. He loves you. He came for you. May He be your Lord forevermore. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Hear this prayer. For those of you who have never prayed this prayer, 
you've never transferred the trust of your life over to Christ, this is Easter 2013. And I will say to you, folks, that in one year from now, as you sit around that Easter table, there may be some people at your table that won't be there next year, that are there this year. We don't know how long we have in this earth. And so today might be a really good day to transfer the trust over to what Christ has done on the cross and thank Him that He got out of the grave which made Plan B and Sunday the most powerful thing in the world. Here's the prayer. If it it satisfies the desire of your heart, pray with me silently as I pray it out loud. Lord Jesus Christ, come into my life right now. Thank You for dying for me. I accept You as my Savior and Lord. I humbly, gratefully, Transfer from plan A. I give it up. I toss it. I, I absolutely junk plan A. And God, thank you that I can transfer my trust to what you did on Calvary's cross. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for making me righteous with your righteousness. Help me to grow as a Christian. Help me to become the person you want me to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Lord, you hear those prayers. We don't always know who prays them. But I pray, Lord, that you would be so kind to us as to allow us once again to know and for us to remember once again that Friday was a good Friday for us. Friday was when our Lord took everything on Him. But Sunday was even better. But if we think that Friday is just full of misery and that Satan is one, we're us all back there on plan A. No, Lord, you rose from the grave. And because of that, we have hope. And we have power. And we have confidence. And we have joy. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. As the elders come and ushers come to pass out the communion. Remember, we're going to be passing out the bread. Wait for everybody to get a piece and then we'll, we'll, we'll do that together. As it's being passed out, could you spend some time just in meditation, prayer, thanking God for what He's done for you? And even if you didn't pray that prayer with me, but you said, maybe I should have. Maybe you could even do that now. And this could truly be your really first communion that you've had with Him to sell the celebration of what Christ has done for us. So as the choir kind of leads us a little bit today, would you just bow your head and take this time to just meditate and thank the Lord for what he's done.